did it all so perfectly. Yet sin entered in and just put us where we are today as a result of sin. But yet, thank you. Thank you for your plans. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for restored this relationship and redeemed us. And this is the beauty of the whole thing by knowing that, you know what? It can't be bad enough because God's plan is greater than my sin. Even when the world is falling apart, God's plan is greater than these problems. Even when we don't know what to do, your plan is greater than all of this. This is your way. This is what we're asking. Have your way in me. Because when it starts with me, you're going to use me to spread it to the world, to my community, to my neighbors, wherever I may go. And this is the church you call us to be. Help us to finally surrender and yield to you so we may do whatever you ask of us. Thank you for allowing us to sing, worship, and pray this morning as we continue to pray for the world, mentioning people in Afghanistan perhaps not have the peace they used to have or other places in the world, people in Haiti who have been impacted by the earthquake they can't gather together as us this morning we can't take this for granted but we thank you for the opportunity and we pray that you move in the world as you're doing with us in our heart as this time of the service brother 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 jake gonna come up to bring your word i pray that you use them greatly so he can speak truth speak your wisdom to us and use us to stay focused and listen so we can learn what it is you want us to know about you today, what it is you want us to apply in our lives today. We may do so in spirit and in truth. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Shama, for uh, leading us to the throne room this morning. I appreciate that. Um, If we have not met, my name is uh, Jake Hancock. I work for the Kentucky Baptist Convention as the regional campus minister at Eastern Kentucky University as well as the southeast region of Kentucky. Um, And I'm honored uh, to be with you all this morning. uh, And I'm thankful for Red House's partnership with the Kentucky Baptist Convention to advance the gospel, not only here in Madison County, uh, but to the ends of the earth. And so uh, I'm thankful for, for you all. This morning, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 14. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to open Acts chapter 14. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 8 through 20. Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. And to start us off this morning, I'm just going to read uh, at the beginning of 11 through the beginning of 15. So Acts 14 beginning in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. 
But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. Father, I pray this morning, uh, as Shama has already prayed, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, would you give us a heart for Jesus, a heart to share Jesus. Grow that desire, grow our faith this morning. And we pray this in, in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we get into our, our text this morning, uh, we see that, that the Apostle Paul is on his first missionary journey he's ever taken. Uh, he's traveled to, to different cities, Iconium and Antioch. And as he's traveling into these different cities, he's preaching the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so every time he does this, he enters a city as we look through Acts and he is faced with incredible persecution. Great persecution, so much so that he actually has to leave the city or they're going to kill him. So he's preaching the gospel, he's faced with persecution, it forces him to go on to the next city. And here we see Paul, he's in a very different kind of city. He's in Lystra. Now, Lystra was a, was a country town in Paul's day. Think of it as like the, uh, the wild, wild west. It was an outpost of the Roman Empire. The people there, they were, they were uneducated, uh, they were backwoods pagans, and we see that the Romans, they rule the land. The Romans own the land. The Greeks, they control all the commerce that's happening within the city. And the Jews, there's no presence of any Jews or very, very little Jewish presence. And so this city, Lystra, was a largely pagan city. And just like before every other city, he begins preaching the gospel. And, and what I want us to see this morning is, is Paul's evangelism tactics, how he enters in the gospel in his context, and how we can now apply Paul's words. So the first evangelism tactic that I want us to look at is in verse 8 through 10, and, and that is your personal holiness. Our personal holiness is the greatest evangelism tactic. Look at verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man who could not use his feet, who was sitting. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprung up and began walking. So we see this man who has been paralyzed from birth. He spent his entire life crawling through the dirty, dusty streets to give himself a, a, an advantage to make a living. So he crawls into the marketplaces to beg for a living. And here, he's laying on his mat in the middle of this crowd, and he catches the, the voice of the Apostle Paul speaking. And the text says that, that Paul looked at him intently looked at him intently. This is this idea that we get that Paul is speaking to this large crowd and he finds this crippled man and he lays eyes on him and he never takes his eyes off. And then Paul then perceives that this man's faith 
by the working of the Holy Spirit, tells this man to stand up. And so the man springs up from the first time in his entire life, and he begins walking around. Now, it would be easy here to conclude that that these verses are about the, the physical healing of a crippled man. The healing of this crippled. But, but I don't think that's why Luke is, is recording this in Acts. Notice verse 9. He listened to Paul speaking. What, what do you all think the Apostle Paul was speaking about? Was he giving physical therapy instructions? Was he, was he telling this crowd how to do proper form for CrossFit? Was he, was he trying to, to have a, a motivational speech? What was it that Paul said to allow this man to stand up on his feet and begin walking? We know that Paul was speaking the gospel. He was speaking the gospel, the sinless life of Jesus, the death of Jesus that paid for our debt and the resurrection of Jesus that gives us new life now and for eternity. And it says that this man had faith to be made well. Now, here's, this is really interesting. This word or this English phrase, to be made well, it's actually condensed in the Greek. And it's just one word. And it's the same word in which we get the study of soteriology, the study of salvation. And so when the text says in Paul, seeing he had faith to be made well, It means that Paul sees through the lens of the Holy Spirit that this crippled man has just come to faith in Christ. He has just believed the gospel unto salvation. And so we see there's two healings here. First, his soul comes alive. He's believed in the resurrection of Christ. And then as a byproduct of the coming kingdom, his physical ailments are are restored. We see this time and time again throughout the Gospels and and through the Apostles as they they preach and they they heal people. The text always says, and they were made well. And they they stood up and they began walking. What is happening is that we're we're getting a glimpse, a a window into eternity. And we're seeing what eternity is going to be like. As, as people are believing the gospel, they are now, uh, uh, it's ushering in a glimpse of what heaven will be like where there is no more pain. There is no more suffering. There is no more tears and death. This is why Paul preached the gospel. But have you ever wondered how Paul, the greatest missionary in history, had the, the boldness had the determination to preach the gospel even when his life was at stake. Like, what drove Paul? What gave him ambition to keep going even when his life is in danger? How did he have the audacity to go into city after city to preach the gospel knowing he would probably die? When we look at Scripture and the the holistic nature of it, we see that it was his pursuit of holiness. Paul's greatest tool in sharing Jesus with others was to look more like Jesus. Paul had an unshakable, unrelenting, holy ambition to look more like Christ day after day after day. In Philippians 3, 12, Paul says this, Not that I have already attained this. That is, I have not already been perfected, but I strive. 
I strive to lay hold of that which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Christ who is perfectly holy shows us the climax of holiness is selflessness at the cross. And so the the most selfless thing that, that you and I can do is to share the gospel. Paul's greatest tool in his evangelism belt was his personal holiness, his pursuit to look more like Jesus. And the same is true for us. I wonder if we, if we think about this often. Have you ever wondered or thought about that your personal devotional time to King Jesus is actually your, your greatest tactic in sharing Jesus? It's, compl- it's con- directly connected. It's linked. The time that we are fueled up in the word and prayer are directly correlated to sharing Jesus with others. It's because I find those who are most captivated, who are enthralled with the person of God and the word of God to be the most bold witnesses for the kingdom. Because you talk about Whatever is filling you up. You talk about what you consume, right? If, if, if you're like me, I, I watched the Cats play last night or yesterday afternoon. And, uh, and right after the game, I was, I was really eager to talk about it because I'm, I'm consuming the Wildcats. And I'm, I want to talk about my Kentucky Wildcats. If you're, if you're a big Food Network fan, like my wife who watches baking shows all the time, what happens? Well, she's consuming Food Network, and then she goes to the kitchen and begins baking. You do and say the things that you are filling yourself up with, and we see that Paul was consumed by Christ. It controlled him. But the opposite of this is also true. I find those who have a, a weak witness for Jesus are often consumed with themselves. Because if you're not hungry for God, then you're probably full of yourself. And if we're full of ourselves, then we're only going to talk about ourselves. But when you empty out, when you flush out all the the selfish desires and comforts and preferences that we have, and we begin filling ourselves with the immense love and mercy and grace, and we're reminding ourselves of, of what Christ has done And we're experiencing daily the sweetness of his grace. If we're we're doing this over and over and we're, we're understanding who God is and we're understanding who we are in light of God, then we are going to become a a walking billboard proclaiming Christ. Your pursuit of holiness, your your the, the desire to look more like Jesus is your greatest tool in sharing Jesus. Look what happens right after. This man springs up after Paul commands him to. In verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought in oxen and and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Okay, so here we are. Crippled man, he, he, hears, God, he hears Paul, he believes the gospel, he stands up, and then all of a sudden the, the whole crowd is, is desiring to worship Paul and Barnabas. 
They see this man walking around, and, and they see this one miracle performed, and they are eager. They are eager to worship Paul and Barnabas. They say, oh, oh, look, uh, Hermes, this is Hermes. He's, he's the god of speech. Paul's really good at speaking, so let's, he must be Hermes. And then you've got Zeus, the, the chief god. That must be Barnabas. And I, I look at this text, and I find it interesting that it, it only took one miracle, one miracle to be labeled as God's. And as we look through the Gospels, we see Jesus who performs thousands of miracles. He heals blind men. He, he feeds tens of thousands. He, he calls a dead man to be raised from the dead. And we, could, we can go on and on with the, with the miracles that we see in the Gospels. And John says at the very end of his Gospel, were every one of Jesus' miracles written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. Paul performs one small miracle, and he is labeled a God. Jesus, who is God, performs thousands of miracles, and they crucified him. Why is that? You see, every person that we've ever met is a worshiper. Every human being to ever exist from Adam to the newest newborn baby today, is a worshiper. Everyone wants to worship something because we were created to worship. And so the, the crowd here, they are eager to worship. They, they lift their voice up in triumph and they say, the gods have paid our back city a visit. Listen, their worship though was self-focused. They wanted to, the, the benefit of having the gods in their city. Hey, Iconium, Antioch, Corinth. Look at us. We're Lystra. We're the home of Zeus and Hermes. Have you heard of us? You better now. Right? It, was, it was about them. They wanted to be known as the city of Zeus and Hermes. They were more full of self, though, than they were on the gods that they were worshiping. Because the, these so-called gods that they were worshiping only filled them with more self. And anything we worship other than God will only fill us with more self. That's the curse of idolatry. John Calvin said it right when he said this. Our hearts are idol factories. We're just producing idols. We know that, that self-worship, we, as the church, we know self-worship leads to destruction. It leads to misery because we see this at Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve, they wanted glory for themselves. They wanted to be God. And so they took the fruit and they ate it knowing we can be like God if we do this. And the end result for them was death. They brought death and chaos into our world because they wanted to be worshipped. The crowd in Lystra did the same. They approached worship based on how they could benefit. It was self-promotion. And when we look at texts like this, it's tempting to put us in this story as Paul. It's tempting. But I don't think we're Paul. I don't think we're Barnabas in this story. I think we're the, we're the crowd. 
And we can have the same approach sometimes to the Christian life as this pagan crowd did in Lystra. Because when we worship self, y'all, it only paralyzes our evangelistic zeal. I was uh, a few years ago when I was at Southern Seminary, I was taking classes and, and there's this coffee shop and there's this thing that we always do. We, we would go to this coffee shop with a bunch of other seminarian students and we'd sit down and we would just start talking theology. And soon enough, we were getting into these you know, conversation, conversations and it becomes this one-upmanship game. Oh, you're, you know this? Here's what I know about that. Oh, Oh, I, oh, you do? Okay, you know more than that? Oh. So it's just this one-upmanship game of talking about theology. Because we just wanted the other person to know how much we knew about this particular s- subject. And it only struck me later that they were, there were so many lost people all around that coffee shop. And never once did I share the gospel with them. Not one time. You see, we were talking about God, but I was worshiping myself. Maybe there's other ways that, that our, our, our evangelistic zeal can be paralyzed. And maybe it's, it's by a different kind of, of self-worship that's hard to identify, but this is something that I struggle with. It's the, the worship of self-preservation, to preserve one's reputation, to preserve yourself. Right? We get these chances to talk about Jesus. We're, we're at the ballpark or the grocery store. We, we get these moments where we, we can share Jesus with somebody, but that moment comes and, and something tightens up and we hold on to ourselves. We want to preserve ourselves and we just stay silent. Maybe you're a mom here and, and you invite a, another mom over to your house for a play date and you know that this person, based on past conversations, probably doesn't know Jesus but you just met, you're friends, and you're like, okay, this, this would be awkward if I just brought this up. So I'm just going to wait. I'm going to stay silent. I'm not going to talk about Jesus, at least not yet. Or maybe you're at the office or, or you're at the, the factory, and you hear somebody just take the Lord's name in vain. And you're like, oh, this would be a really good opportunity for me to, to talk about the God that, that they just cursed. But something stops you. You freeze up and you're like, ah. This could be weird. This could be awkward. I'm just going to, I'm not going to say anything. So when we withhold Jesus at the expense of our reputation, then we're worshiping ourselves. When we worship ourselves, it only paralyzes our evangelistic zeal. And this is the crazy thing is that we can be guilty of worshiping ourselves even while we're sharing the gospel. I've detected this in my own heart. Right, think about this. You, you spend a lot of time preparing and, and thinking about sharing the gospel with, with your friend or your family member or a neighbor. And then that moment actually comes to, to actually talk about Jesus, to, to do this. And so in that moment, you're, you're being faithful and you're, you're, you're going to do it. You're going to talk about the Lord. But sometimes we can be more focused on myself. Am I going to say the right thing? What if I mess up? What if, what if it doesn't come across the way that I intended it to? And instead of focusing on the person right in front of me, encountering God, I'm more worried about myself. And if I'm only consumed with, with me and what I'm saying, then, then that's idolatry. That's self-worship. 
So we can be more consumed with the, the presentation of how, and how people will perceive us than focusing on the actual person standing right in front of us encountering the risen Savior. When we do this, it, we actually minimize the gospel because our, our focus is still on self and it's not on Christ. But y'all, what if, what if we as, as the body of Christ, as Christians, we just got out of the way? We just got out of the way. We stopped worrying about ourselves and we just leveraged every situation to make much of Jesus. What if our prayer life looked something like, Lord, I, 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 would, I want you, I have desires to make much of me. Would you remove those desires? Would, would you give me desires just to make much of Jesus? I think the Lord is eager to answer those prayers. And that's exactly what Paul does. Look at how he deflects personal glory and he points them to eternal glory. In verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, this this sacrifice, this worship, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of, of like nature with you and we bring you good news. So Paul and Barnabas Um, They did not know what was happening in those moments where they're crying out, the gods have come down to worship us. Uh, They they didn't realize what was happening because they were speaking in Lyconian. It's a different language. But they recognized as soon as the the priest of the temple of Zeus walks out with an ox and and, and wreaths, uh-oh, they're offering sacrifice. So they, they recognize what's taking place. They rush out into the crowd and they cry, no, 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 no. You Listen, you guys have got this all wrong. We are, we're just men. We're men just like you. Paul ends up not looking down on them as gods, but across to them as fellow image bearers. I wonder if this is how we, can, we approach our faith with others. Right? When we encounter someone who, who we know needs Jesus, we know that they need the Lord but you encounter them with just maybe a, a smidge of superiority. You know, you see their lifestyle, you see what they've done, you see how they're dressed, and, and you just think, man, I'm glad I'm, I'm not as sinful as, as that person. At least I'm not that messed up. I mean, goodness. Listen, I, I joined a, a Facebook group um, a couple months ago, and it looked to be a really encouraging group to join. And it was this bunch of campus ministers and, and pastors and, and church leaders. And uh, I didn't recognize any of the names, but initially it looked like they were, it was a, uh, a group to discuss practical ministry. It looked like a group to, to really hone in on, on ideas. And, and so I joined this group and I, as I'm scrolling through, I quickly found out that's not what this group is. Um, all they were doing was, was critiquing theology. They were they were telling, you know, this is this guy over here. He's just, he, don't listen to him. And this guy over here, don't, yeah, he's, he's terrible. Uh, it was just a bunch of uh, Christians complaining about the culture. See, they were looking down on anyone that didn't agree with their view. So what I found was this cesspool of self-righteousness. And I thought, how, how in the world does this group on Facebook advanced the gospel. Like, what is happening here that God is being glorified up there? And so, of course, I, you know, 
click the delete button. I'm like, wash my hands of that group. Wow, I can't believe how self-righteous they were. And then I realized something a little deeper. By doing that, I was being self-righteous about their self-righteousness. I didn't share the gospel with any of those people. I didn't correct a brother. I didn't, I didn't do any of those things. So my own self-righteousness incapacitated my ability to share Jesus with others. Because the Bible teaches us something. That apart from Jesus, there's nothing good in us. No one is good. No, not one. That is the posture that Paul took here. Paul later calls himself the chief of sinners. He knew his sin. He knew his failures. He was keenly aware of his offense against a holy God. But his sin did not disqualify him from sharing the gospel. It actually made him more equipped to tell others that Jesus saves. A greater awareness of our sin only magnifies our awareness of God's grace. Have you ever thought about this for yourself, that, that being open and honest about your sin with a, with a non-believer, it doesn't hurt your witness. It actually gives you a chance to tell that person how Jesus is changing you. It gives you an opportunity. So hear me. Your, your brokenness, your, your sin, it doesn't disqualify you from sharing the gospel. It actually provides a means to share the gospel. So when we're sharing the gospel with somebody, and I'm sure we've all been to a similar situation like this, and the person says something like, <clears throat> oh, there's just no way. There's just no way God could save somebody like me. Dude, I'm way too messed up. If you only knew the things that I was thinking... Like right now, if you only knew the things that I've done in my past, no. I, they're just, I don't think God could save somebody like me. And we look at that person eye to eye. And our response is, me too. But he did it anyway. Jesus saved me. That's the mystery of the cross. Christ didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the sinner. And this is the good news that Paul is preaching. Look at verse 15. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things and to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So this next evangelism tactic that we see that Paul unloads is a conversation and not so much a presentation. But before we get to this tactic, I want us to look at how, at how he responds to this, this listening crowd. He tells them, hey, we, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. Now, we use this word gospel a lot in, in our circles, right? We, we talk about the gospel. The gospel is good news. And it, it's the point of our entire life as, as existing human beings. It's the gospel. And maybe you hear the word gospel and you think, God's love. It's justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Jesus died for my sins so I don't have to go to hell. All those things, they're, they're, they're true. These are all, none of these are necessarily wrong, 
But to understand this word gospel just a little better, I think it's helpful to take a step back into time. So the word gospel, again, Greek translate to good news. And this, this word, though, was, was popularized well before Jesus comes on to the scene. We associate gospel with, with Christ, but it was actually used primarily in, the, in relation to, to war and battle. It was a war term. You see, the gospel was, is, was an announcement of victory for a king. It was an announcement of victory that the king has won. And so the king, here we are, the king has his army, and they're, they're, they're at odds with another kingdom, and so they, they go out to battle on the field, and the king and his army, they, they leave their kingdom. There's people left in that kingdom, and they are waiting eagerly for, the, for news. They're anticipating what is going to happen to us. Our king and the army, they, are, they have left our kingdom. We are unprotected. And now, what's going to happen? Are, are we going to become slaves to the, to the enemy? Or will we have victory? Will our king, king come back with victory? And so when the king's army finally seized the enemy and defeated the enemy, the, the king would grab a messenger boy and he would say, hey, run back to the city. Tell them the gospel. So the, the boy would, would run back as fast as he can, carrying with him the good news. The king has won. The king is victorious. And so when Paul is preaching to a city of pagans who have zero understanding of the Old Testament, Remember, there's no synagogue here. They would have still understood this word, good news. They would have understood that Paul and Barnabas, you you guys are telling us that you're bringing an announcement of victory. Okay, so what is this victory? What is is it? Paul says, "We, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things and to a living God. Wait a second. Paul. Repent? Turn? That's, that's victory? Seriously? This is what you're going to say victory is? When I think of repentance, I, I don't necessarily think of, of victory. It makes me think of sorrow. It makes me think of regret. It doesn't make me think of good news. But it should. Because Paul says repentance is good news because it's the act of, of turning from worthless things into a worthy person. Repentance reveals something to our hearts. It reveals the, to our hearts the worthless things that, that were never meant to satisfy the things that only God can satisfy. That's repentance, and that's why it's good news. And look at how Paul, look at his brilliant approach to sharing the good news. Look at verse 15b to 17. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things into a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. See, in the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave them himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Do you see what Paul did? Like, this is incredible. He enters into the context of what they knew. These were pagans. They were void of Scripture. And so he didn't open up the the Torah. He doesn't open up the the Old Testament. He doesn't uh, give this canned presentation. He doesn't use Roman's road. 
even though he wrote Romans Road. Um, he, he doesn't do any of these things. He, he understood that these people were biblically illiterate. And so he starts with what they do know. He, he tells a story, a story of redemption. And he starts at Genesis 1.1. Heaven and earth, sea and animals. Paul says, listen, I, I know you've got little gods for all these things. But I'm here to tell you something. I'm here to tell you about the God who has won victory over sin and death. He didn't edit the gospel message, but he changed his approach to sharing the gospel. And we can, we can apply this to our lives right now. We can, we can take the same approach that Paul did and learn to share Jesus with other people and not freak out. I'll know for myself and, and for the college students that, that I get to minister to that we all overcomplicate this. Like we, we just do. We overcomplicate sharing the gospel. But what if we took Paul's cue here and we entered the context of where people are to show them Jesus? Listen, the human soul is so complex. Like we know that. But at the very core of every human being, there is the same fundamental desires. We're all in a search for freedom. We're all looking for a purpose in life, meaning in life. We're all wanting love. We, we want to be in a community. That's, that's the same fundamental desires that every human being from the very beginning till today is desiring. And so when, when we find those desires of somebody that doesn't know Jesus, we can enter into that context and show that Jesus is the answer. You see, everyone is searching for the things that the gospel already answers. People are already searching for things that only Jesus can answer. So how easy could it be for us than to just find out what people are searching for, what they're longing for, and then show them Jesus? Think about it practically. Let's say you have a, a next-door neighbor who, who identifies as, as a lesbian, and then you've, you're at the grocery store. And, and you see this, this retired war veteran. And, and both of these people, as different of lives as they live, they're both searching for freedom. Now, their, their ideal freedom looks different, right? It looks different. But the gospel answers and encounters both of them. And so you, you enter into either of these conversations and you say, listen, I, I know you, you've been looking for freedom. I wonder, have you, have you found freedom yet? No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Well, can, can I tell you how I found freedom? Can I tell you about the God who has set me free? Maybe you, have a, uh, you see a college freshman uh, who comes from, from out of state, uh, and then you've got this lonely widower down your street. And both of these people are hungering for, for love and community. And so you're talking to either one of them and you, you say, listen, hey, there's, a, there's a community. It's called the church. And in the church, you're going to see people sacrificially love one another because they've been purchased by Jesus on the cross. Can I, can I please tell you about this community? Can I tell you about the, this Jesus who loves you? And you enter into the gospel. This, uh, maybe there's an international student uh, from the Middle East and and uh, you encounter this, this student, and then 
you look at your own household and you, you see your, your own middle school student and both people are, have a desire to, to be rid of guilt and shame. And so you're talking to either one of them and, you, and you're just saying, hey, I can tell, I can see that, that something is weighing you down with guilt and shame. And I'll tell you, it's, it's impossible to get rid of guilt and shame. But can I tell you about the God who does the impossible? Can I tell you about the God who, who can cast your sin as far as the east is from the west? Yes, please. And then you enter into the gospel. And say, this is what the gospel is. This is how you believe the gospel. So we know what people are longing for because, guys, we long for the same thing. We're longing for these same things. So therefore, starting a gospel conversation should be the most natural thing in the world for us to do. Because everyone is created by God. And everyone is created for God. Our job is simply to show people that truth. Our appetites, our longings, they're the same. And so when we encounter somebody that doesn't know Jesus, all we have to do is listen. Just listen to where they are in life. Understand their desires. See what they worship. See what they value. And then, as Paul shows us, we can enter into their context and shared the gospel without freaking out. I love this quote from, from our, uh, a book that I was reading with our student leaders um, called Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. Um, it says this, If you're a Christian, then you have a story. Okay? If you're a human, then you have relationships with other humans. Boom. That's all we need to share the gospel. We have a story. We have relationships with other people. All we have to do is tell people of what, what Jesus has done for us. You're thinking, all right, Jake, I've tried that. I've shared the gospel. did not go the way that I wanted it to. It was not good. They did not believe. Well, that's okay. Jesus doesn't call us to save people. That would make us God. All Jesus calls us to do is to be faithful and to trust him to save. Listen, as we go down the rest of the story, we see that Paul uh, in Lystra, it, it, it didn't work out for this guy either. In fact, after Paul shares the gospel, they try to kill him. <laughs> they try to stone him. Look at verse 19 through 20. <clears throat> but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, these were the two cities that, that Paul was just at. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So the Jews, they show up from Iconium and, and Antioch. They take a day off from work because they're like, Paul's in Elisha. We, let's, y'all, let's go. We've got to go convince this crowd to stone him, to kill him. So they, so they get to Elisha. They do that. They try to kill Paul. They think he's dead. This is the, these are the same people that were just worshiping him. In the same breath, now they're, they're throwing stones at him. And they thought they killed Paul. So they drag his body out of the city so that it doesn't smell up their town. And then the disciples, they, they gather around him. And, and Paul who is covered in blood, he's got stones embedded in his forehead, stands up, 
And he walks back into the city that just stoned him. What? What is happening? That is gritty gospel faithfulness. He is living a life faithful to Jesus. And the power of the gospel, it's not dependent on our our crafty presentations or, or elegant words. It's simply a lifestyle faithful to Jesus. And this should just free us up, y'all. This should, this should be the most liberating thing for us to hear because if we want to be a, have a bold witness for the, for the kingdom, we don't need to have all the answers. We don't. We don't need to take seminary classes, though those can be helpful. We don't have to read every book on apologetics to begin sharing the gospel. All we need is a story. We need Jesus' story. An announcement of victory that, that Jesus came into this broken world and he, he died to save sinners like you and me. He lived this perfect life, never sinning, but then died a, the, the death of a sinner on the cross, paying for our sin. And then death was murdered as Jesus got out of the grave three days later. And when we believe this gospel, this announcement of victory... We get his story. Let's go tell that story. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word in Acts chapter 14. God, your gospel has not only liberated our desires for ourselves, but they've captivated our desires of the risen Savior, Jesus. Lord, may we have a life faithful to Jesus. That we see every person we come in contact as a, an eternal being. Lord, we would eagerly want to show them how you have set us free, how you have given us purpose, how you have liberated our souls. Lord, I pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Well, as the band uh, continues to pray, I, I encourage us um, at this time to, to respond to God's word. Uh, something that is incredible is that the Bible says that it never returns void. Uh, it's always, it's living, it's active. And so when we hear God's word, by default, we will respond. Now, our response could be, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to push that away. I don't want to do that. Or we could respond and say, Lord, I, I don't have a desire for this. Would you grow this desire? Maybe your, your response is, Lord, there are people around me that I know I need to share the gospel with. But however that is this morning, let's respond in the gospel. Brother Dwayne's going to be up here uh, to receive anybody. Um, let's respond as we praise. Blessed assurance.